What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Oh my God. It's like the handmaid's tale. It would be different if I had like a younger sister or something, or even like a family friend. It's someone we had a real connection with, so it wasn't just preying on the bodies of random young women. Catherine Hahn there in a scene from director Tamara Jenkins' Private Life, which is actually not at all like The Handmaid's Tale, but about a couple in their 40s desperate to have a child. Though preying on the bodies of unsuspecting young people does come up in another film we'll review this week. How are we going to get anyone to listen to the rest of this show? Along with Private Life, we'll also discuss Hold the Dark, a gothic-ish thriller set in remote Alaska from Green Room and Blue Ruin director Jeremy Saunier. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Well, we celebrated Halloween a little early this year with last week's show. We had reviews of both the new Halloween and John Carpenter's 1978 original. It was a glorious moment over the weekend, Josh. I got an alert on my phone when the tomato meter for Carpenter's Halloween went from 93% to 95%. Was that because you added a positive review or I switched my rotten to a fresh? I think we both contributed to that, Josh. I'm glad you're monitoring Rotten Tomatoes so closely that you're getting alerts. I live and die by the tomato meter. I didn't know that was even possible. It's just an app they made for me. Oh, great. (laughs) The scares continued this week with wolf attacks, fertility clinics, and massacre theater. That's where we horrify you with some terrible acting and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. Later in the show, we'll have some thoughts on Private Life, the new film from director Tamara Jenkins. It's her first since 2007's The Savages. Private Life has Katherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti as a couple in their 40s trying to have a child by any means necessary. Adam and I will also recommend a couple of new releases, Can You Ever Forgive Me, with Melissa McCarthy in a more dramatic role, and Monrovia, Indiana, the new film from veteran documentarian Frederick Wiseman. Also, some thoughts on Nicole Hall of Center's The Land of Steady Habits. We saw everything. Sounds like it, doesn't it? (laughs) But first, our review of another movie that would make for good Halloween viewing, Jeremy Saunier's Hold the Dark. It's not the first time people died out there. The hillside is scattered with pieces of bodies. That's what you get when you talk to the villagers. People are dying. That's real enough. Help! Leave us to the devils. I don't think either of us would be so foolish as to characterize Jeremy Saunier's two previous films, 2014's Blue Ruin and 2016's Green Room, as simple or lacking in nuance and complexity, uninterested in probing the often unseemly depths of the human experience. But compared to his latest, Hold the Dark, based on William Giraldi's 2014 book, both are undeniably pretty straightforward. The former, a character-driven revenge thriller, the latter, a grisly tale of survival. The distinction is somewhat ironic because Hold the Dark is, on paper and in parts, 
both a character-driven revenge thriller and grisly tale of survival, this time set against the isolated, apparently endless Alaskan wilderness instead of a confined nightclub overrun by skinheads. There are hints, and maybe more than hints, of the supernatural, not to mention plenty of unnatural acts that defy explanation in Hold the Dark, which sees Jeffrey Wright's Russell Core summoned by a mother, played by Riley Keough, who is grieving the killing of her young son by wolves and wants them hunted down. Ambiguous would seem to be an appropriate descriptor, but it's a word for me that carries with it almost exclusively a positive connotation. Who doesn't want art to contain multiple possible meanings and interpretations? Who doesn't want art to provoke hours of rumination on those meanings and interpretations? But what about art that is just plain vague or confounding? Perhaps even pretentious in how it occasionally flirts with larger profundities without the actual provocation. If not forced to consider it for this show, Josh, how long would Hold the Dark have loomed in your consciousness? Is there indeed some profundity in the mysteries of Sonia's Alaska, or am I overstating the filmmaker's elusive ambition altogether? No, it actually stuck with me. It was a more interesting experience to me in the aftermath in a lot of ways, which I think I mostly mean yeah. as a compliment. And you're dead on in referencing ambiguity here. Just trying to describe this movie in my written review, I said it's a werewolf movie that isn't a werewolf movie, but really kind of is. I, I, can't, I still can't even make up my own mind. Maybe, maybe we'll do a little bit of spoiler at the very end of this where we can share how we come down on that particular question. I think you're onto something, though, in that the ambiguity is both a strength and a weakness of this film in different degrees. For me, the weakness part might be that uh, there are a few narrative gaps here, I would say, um, some frustratingly open questions mm-hmm. that the narrative seems you to want to know the answer but doesn't provide, which to me is a little different than letting us fill in the blanks ourselves. You know what it sort of felt like to me in the aftermath was uh, almost a limited run Netflix series that had been squished into a feature film. I I could have really seen standalone episodes with a certain character Mm -hmm. that filled in some of this stuff that maybe we wanted to know um, and let the story breathe and made this world a little bit more whole, a little bit more cohesive, yeah. um, that would have been rewarding. But I think the material is rich enough if you consider supporting characters like James Badgedale's sheriff and yes. also Cheon, who is a friend here and someone else who has been a victim of a wolf attack on his family. They're fascinating characters. There you go. And, and both could have easily sustained an episode. And here you get just enough of them to want more and also just teases as to how they do fit into this larger narrative. Now, the larger narrative itself... I was drawn into Mm -hmm. and fascinated by and this central question of what is going on in this remote village, what do we make of it given what we know about survival movies, which have a realistic tendency, but also more supernatural. Part of the fun for me was like, where is this thing falling genre wise? Mm -hmm. Not that I needed a specific answer on that. That's the ambiguity that I enjoyed is the way Sonia was using the elements from the novel to keep us always guessing what in the world kind of movie are we watching that i did enjoy not only keeping us guessing as far as what kind of movie we're watching but what's going to happen moment to moment i think that's one of the thrills in all of sonia's films is that really everything is up for grabs scene by scene and just when you think you're dialed into what kind of film it is or what kind of characters these are it jars you and goes in a completely different direction i immediately settled into this film thinking it was going to be 
a movie about Jeffrey Wright's character coming to terms with his own family dysfunction, some of the loss that he's experienced, but it was going to be kind of like The Grey. It was going to be a movie where he's out in the wilderness wrestling with his demons and possibly wrestling with wolves. And within 20 minutes or so, we discover this is really going to be a different kind of movie. I think we also recognize it's a different kind of movie just in terms of its craft. And for those of us who have seen these two previous films, that visual artistry isn't really a surprise. The cinematography here is spectacular. Oh, it's gorgeous. I'm probably going to butcher the name. Magnus Nordenhoff Yonk? I was going to go Yonk. going Yonk. Uh, we'll go Yonk. Let's say Yonk. Okay. He also did the camera work for Lean on Pete. Is yep, that right? From right. earlier this year, another movie that we thought was gorgeous. And the compositions here of these Alaskan mountains and the landscapes of the wolves themselves. There are isolated shots throughout this film that really take your breath away. And just in terms of the storytelling too, and this is where the editing obviously comes into play as well. But I think about the very beginning of this film where we see a shot of the young boy, the son, he's playing with a soldier in some ice and he then looks up and sees the wolf and we cut to the wolf looking back at him. And then the next shot is a door being locked which has some significance, we find out later. And we see Riley Keough, as the mother Medora is her name, walking over to make some tea or coffee. And then she goes over to the door and opens it up and just looks at that block of ice where her son was. Just in that one cut, we have transported ahead in time. We come to learn it's only been a few days. But she looks out at that ice and we see the soldier still stuck in it. The ice in the foreground with the soldier and the mom in the background. We know everything we need to know or think we need to know about what happened to that boy just in those few cuts and those shots. And actually, I think my single favorite shot in the movie is that one of the camera slowly tracking behind her as she opens the door. It's a very searchers-esque doorway moment, whether deliberately or not. But all we see is that total engulfing blackness. And then when she opens the door, that vertical swath of light from it, and then in front of her, in the background of that shot, all that grandeur and that kind of menacing isolation in the distance. And really that shot, I think, Josh, in a lot of ways is a visual metaphor for the entire movie. It's called Hold the Dark. Yeah. It's called that very much for a reason. We might be able to get into some of the aspects of just how literal that can be taken. But that little sliver of light against that encompassing darkness and that battle that's going on and the battle that the light is losing is really at the core of this entire film. Yeah, there's a matching shot to that moment, which I like almost as much. And I think it also involves Medora opening her door to the night, to the darkness. Mm. And that is definitely a visual motif that is continually returned to is this idea of the limited sunlight they have in this part of Alaska. And uh, it, it reminded me of, I don't know if, if you ever saw, probably not the vampire thriller from 2007, uh, 30 Days of Night. I did not. Which essentially uses the same idea. Like we've only got so much sunlight to to, to work with here, that's pretty much just a gore fest. But here, there's so much more um, metaphysical weight given to that idea. And think about the darkness, including that shot I'm talking about where she opens it and almost comes into the home and how the movie is constantly trying to push it back with a fireplace maybe or a dingy lamp, something that's trying to keep back this malevolent presence that that really is a felt force in the film. So I think that's a distinction uh, of Hold the Dark as well. And some of the other composition that you were talking about, so much of it is a mixture of of beauty, mystery, and frightening natural 
power. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the shots of the wolves, but there's also that mesmerizing image when Kor is driving towards the village in the first time and a bison just comes and blocks the road yeah. and just stands there. Still so large, looming in the frame. Looks like some sort of prehistoric creature almost. So so there's that as well. And uh, definitely these icy mountain ranges and the wolves. It's all, all again, just um, beautiful images, mysterious images, and they all hold this frightening natural power. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated with the movie. I think you used that word. And that's where I was initially after I saw it. I think I felt like some of that ambiguity was just willful kind of vagueness, hoping it would be the kind of mystery that would really grab us. And instead, I never felt like I got on firm ground with the film. And I stand by some of that. But the more I think about the film, and the more I think about it in relation to Sonia's other films, as I went back and looked at my notes for Blue Ruin and for Green Room, I did find that I was able to maybe see things a little bit more clearly. In fact, maybe I'm simplifying them a little bit too much. But if you think about Blue Ruin, definitely as a movie that's about revenge, and there's a revenge aspect to this film. And you think about the survival aspect, of course, to Green Room and how that factors into this movie. But the one unifying theme besides the violence and violence is a key part of all three of his films. You might recall actually that when I interviewed Sonia, my first question to him was whether or not violence was going to be something and the way people deal with it in the moment and the ramifications of it was going to be something that he just always dealt with in his work. And he talked about why he is so fascinated by it. I think when you see this movie, you understand why it's a subject that intrigues him so much, that intrigues filmmakers so much, because these violent scenarios often cut to the core of who we are as individuals. But really, seeing this film on the same trajectory as those two movies, I realize that in their own way, all three movies have a central conflict, which is main characters who do not see any way forward that doesn't involve holding the darkness in some way or embracing the darkness. They are characters like the character in Blue Ruin who the only path he sees is to turn himself over to these darker impulses, these baser instincts, and want that revenge. And in Green Room, we see in the character that Anton Yelchin plays, someone who actually, again, has to embrace it just to survive. That's not fundamentally who he is, but when he's put in this scenario, he has to call on that darkness inside him. And I think this movie, Josh, is one where that darkness is very literal. And it's Russell, the Jeffrey Wright character, that the movie is ultimately about is very much about, without getting too much into the details here, it's about his redemption and not the embrace of that darkness, but finally, ultimately, the staving off of the darkness. Yeah, I'd agree. He is the through line, even though it does tend to drop his narrative a little bit, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle part there maybe, which again makes me feel like this would have been a great limited series. Um, But it definitely returns to him and, and he does bring things full circle. I think another thing that it shares with uh, those two other Sonier films that we've talked about is um, he makes these thrillers that are they're definitely visceral, but they're also contemplative in an unexpected way. And they have the bursts of gore are almost always balanced by these long passages of, of ruefulness. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a set piece in the middle of Hold the Dark, a shootout that is pure Sonier in, in terms of making us face the actual physical results of such violence and deal with it, making the characters deal with it, and then by proxy us in the audience. Uh, But there's also, like the other films, there are 
scenes of grim contemplation that balance that sequence out. So uh, that's definitely a through line with his work that that we've seen. Uh, just to touch on the performances a little bit, I think maybe one disappointment for me, and you might differ on this, is I found Keo and Wright, and then also Alexander Skarsgård, who plays Medora's husband at the beginning of the film. He's off fighting in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in the U.S. military. They were so muted for me. And I know it was intentionally miserable. Yes. That, you know, misery is what they were trying to capture. Mm-hmm. But it was just so much that I grabbed on to James Badgedale, who you mentioned, with all my life. Because here's a guy who he's not exactly a live wire, but in right. this world, as this sheriff, who he just brings the tiniest glimmer of warmth into this world that was crucial for me. Um, and definitely, as we mentioned, I would have loved to have gotten more of that character's mm-hmm. story as well. I'm sorry, it's not actually Alexander Skarsgård who's in the film. It's Viggo Mortensen. They somehow managed to make him look 20 years younger. I don't know how they did you think it. he's doing but... a, a Viggo performance Oh my goodness. Here? I mean, <laughs> that is a young Vigo in this film. What if I told you, though, or what if I argued, though, that the performances were pitched that way really so similarly for a reason? I think for two of those characters, there's a very definite reason that we might get to. Well, if you are talking about Vernon, the Skarsgård character, and Medora, Riley Keough, and Jeffrey Wright's Russell as well, I think that it's by design because I do think that ultimately this movie sees all three of those characters really under the same spell, suffering from the same affliction, that affliction that is the darkness that has overtaken them. And the reason why, Josh, you respond so warmly and I do as well. And I think everybody watching this film responds so warmly to James Badgedale's sheriff character isn't just that he's a pretty good actor and fun to watch, but because he is a character who is not from that area. He does not suffer from that same affliction. And we're drawn to him just like Jeffrey Wright's character is ultimately drawn to him. And the only way that you get out from underneath that spell is from those types of human interactions. The type of interaction we see following that terrible shootout that really does seem to go on so long. But following that, we get Russell going to the home of the sheriff and having dinner and some wine and candid conversation and connection with him. And that's something that all these other characters who all act in that same kind of deliberate, hushed, very quiet, very still way, that's because they are under the weight of something that they can't get out of. And I think it's only by the end of the film, potentially, that we see whether or not Russell is a character who comes out from under that weight. That leads me to a spoiler question that I really want to ask you. So okay. I don't know if you are want to get move, into it right now? move into that unless there are other general things you want to cover first. But No, I am all for it. Why don't we go ahead and just be extra safe here? Maybe we'll play. A little scene from the movie. This Good is idea. our transition. We are going to get into spoiler talk on Hold the Dark. What did it feel like to shoot that female wolf? It felt awful. But uh, I really had no choice. Even though she'd taken a child too. Because you think it's the natural order. The natural order doesn't warrant revenge. You're not what you think, Mrs. Sloan. What happened here is... is very rare. What happened here happened to me. 
So this is related to what I said at the beginning about how literally we're supposed to take the werewolf question. My sense is you're not taking it that literally. You're talking more existentially in terms of this affliction, something that people are suffering. The reason I asked if there were two characters is because my reading after giving it some thought and replaying a lot of the film is that I think this is a literal werewolf movie and Medora and Vernon – who grew up in this area together. Mm-hmm. There are references. They've known each other since kids. There are also references to their Nordic heritage. Right. you notice a few times? Which might have just been to cover their casting basis. Maybe, but I think it also purposefully sets them apart from the indigenous villagers Absolutely. who are part of this community as well. So I think, I really think this entire story is about those two wrestling with the fact that they are werewolves, whether it's a curse or however you want to describe mm-hmm. it, and how they are then going to live. And she has a different answer than he does. That leads to the conflict. But I'm really intrigued mm-hmm. by your suggestion that maybe Russell is suffering the same affliction. I think he is. Because do you, but, but do you think it's more like spiritual, metaphysical, or do you think he's a werewolf too? I think the movie does at least suggest that there is potentially – the werewolf connection to this or that somehow these are characters who are transforming or maybe have the ability to transform. I don't know that Russell's afflicted by that. For me, I would say, Josh, it's at least 80% for me, the darkness signifying this sort of isolation and disconnection from humanity, from whoever, from the people you love, from basically civilization. We don't know all of Russell's backstory, but we get enough of it. And we certainly know that he is estranged from both his daughter and from his wife. We know that he's been through at least some kind of harrowing experience that he ended up writing a book about where he was out in nature and studying these wolves and who knows what else he was doing. He did have to take a life. And in that moment, that for me, I guess, is when I think of the darkness. And that's what's funny about it is we talk about how ambiguous this movie is and how mysterious it is. It's called Hold the Dark. And I really think the dark really just means that it's letting in that primal, instinctual, bad side of yourself. And when they put on those masks, maybe they put on those masks, the wolf masks, because they're not actually transforming into the wolves. That's just their representation of how they become the wolf because they don't ever become the wolf. But in essence, they are in their spirit. They are. And in him, I think he is that same character who until the end of this film, after not only getting through the connection with James Badge Dale, but then being left alive by those two and being able to finally reconcile, it's at least hinted at the end, that he's going to potentially reconcile with his daughter. I think it's in that that he comes through the other side. This is really a survival movie about his survival. It's mm-hmm. really about him coming out the other side of that darkness because he was heading down a path that would have led him to a similar position as the one Medora and Vernon are in. And I do want to throw out as well this one little idea that I have not been able to fully articulate yet or come to terms with. But I look back over my notes from Blue Ruin and from Green Room, as I said, and it's funny how the notion, I talked about it with Sonia too, this idea of creating your own story and narratives coming up and not being defined by past actions or your destiny and creating your own path as you move forward. And The idea of telling a story comes up multiple times in this film, including at the very end. But there's an earlier one where it's suggested, I think, by Medora that she wants him to be the chronicler of this, Mm -hmm. of this whole 
traumatic incident and she's just hinting at it. We don't know the depths of it. He doesn't know the depths of it. And then at the end of the film, isn't the last line something like, I'll tell you? He's talking to his daughter and she says something like, what happened? And he says, I'll tell you. And I do think the movie, by having that repetition, and again, tying back to some of Sonia's other work, I feel like he is hinting or anyway, or at least suggesting that through the act of that communication, of that expression with another person telling a story that they can then become a part of, that that's a way out of the darkness. Boy, I I love the interpretation that Russell could be a werewolf as well. Mm-hmm. And and I think it doesn't have to, it can be both literal and metaphorical. Right. Right. It, I see it, it mostly metaphorical, but yeah. it's at least hinted at that it's literal. Exactly. And yeah. that's the ambiguity here that I really like. And something that ties in with Sonia's work is what makes this distinct then is it's more in line with his stuff because it's not just, you know, a werewolf movie where the beast is identified and hunted. And that's the narrative you get. It's, it's more, it's looking at it from another angle making us identify with these characters mm-hmm. for much of the film and then suggesting that savagery of the type we see in his films is part of the natural order. Yes. It's not a supernatural curse. And that is somehow even scarier to mm-hmm. me. Um, For so, sure. Yeah. I think we talked ourselves into liking this movie. Uh, a little bit more than we might have initially thought. I did. I felt that way coming in after devoting some more time to it. I feel that way even more now after talking about it with you. Now, I do want to throw out because I don't think you can talk about spoilers surrounding this movie without getting into it. You didn't go there, but don't you think it's pretty implicit that one of the unnatural aspects of this story is the relationship between Medora and Vernon? And I think that we are supposed to key into the fact when she says, I've never known life without him. That's not just her way of saying we've basically known each other since we Mm -hmm. were little kids. No, they've known each other since they were in the womb together. Oh, that didn't occur to me. They're brother and sister. They're twin brother and sister. That's why they look so much alike. That's why people comment on how much they look alike. That's why when they go talk to that Indian, what's his name? How is he described? The Indian not Hunter, but the guy who talks to— The guy to, living in the house on the hill. Yeah, and he talks to yeah. Vernon, and he says, you were brought to me before. But that's what Your I was going to say. dad thought there was something unnatural about mention, you. Yes, which is a key line mm-hmm. to me about that unnatural. And so then that boy is, is unnatural. Yes. Their offspring is unnatural. Correct. But he, he doesn't mention— well, maybe that would give it away too much. Her at all. If they were twins, you know, you think that that guy in the cabin would have maybe hmm. mentioned that. So I, I don't know. I, my my take was that somehow this was passed down through family lines mm-hmm. and there was I mean, if you want to build a mythology out of this, it could be that immigrants from Sweden, Norway, somewhere came to this land, settled there and they were a tribe of werewolves. Hmm. And that has been passed down. And then the indigenous people have always been aware of this. That's why the older woman in the village immediately warns Russell away, says there's something like there's evil here. This is something they've been living with for generations. Now, we haven't spoiled yet the fact that Medora kills her son. Right. And this ties exactly into Russell's experience where the wolf that he had to kill. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, that fits with my reading, though, too, where we talk about how confounding this movie is. And really, it lays so much out there for you when characters talk about the evil and the darkness and how it's encompassing them. And then also we get that scene where Jeffrey Wright tells that little parable to the sheriff where he explains that when he came upon those wolves, they were eating one of their own. Yeah. 
to survive and when conditions are a certain way out in nature, wolves can react like that. But they're usually reacting to something adverse, it's suggested. Yeah. It's, well, it's that's circumstances that force them into that kind of mode. And isn't that exactly what she's doing in order to ultimately save the future, the future of her people, she felt like she had to sacrifice her own son, just like they sacrificed that wolf. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How does that ensure survival, though? That's a great question. But isn't, Here's isn't my theory. there hints? Okay, I'd love to hear it. But isn't there hints in the form of the burial and how important yeah, that is? true. And that sustains something? They do mark the coffin right. that in a way that suggests something. What I was going to say is the tension is between Medora and Vernon in this film, mm-hmm. one of the crucial points of tension. And my reading of it was that this was her choice to end this line of werewolves, whereas he is fully committed to living as he is. He Mm. has no regrets. He has no remorse. Every time you see him kill in this movie, um, there's that curious flashback sequence in Iraq where he seems to make a morally justified kill, let's just say. And that kind of stands apart um, from some of his other kills, which are almost the acts of a wild animal. Right. Um, I read it as her choice that this has to stop. She is not at peace with who she is. He wants to continue their line, and that's where they hmm. confront each other. Now, the ending, when they reunite yeah. and they let Russell survive, mm-hmm. raises some questions about that, unless she's just yeah. been convinced that, you know— we do have the right to survive. Right. And I don't know how this exactly fits in with their relationship and that line and what her intentions are. But I still do come back to this idea that maybe all along, despite not knowing this person, despite not having any relationship to Russell before, something in reading his book actually did connect with her in a way where she felt compelled to try to rescue him. Because I keep coming back to the idea that she called Why him there she for a reason. Yeah, she she right. didn't need him to go, no. we learned, to go kill the wolves. It was actually to discover the body, to tell the story. Right, right. He was the right person, she thought, to tell the story. And they ultimately leave him alive at the end as well, I think, as part of that reason. Another option. She called him, yes, to tell the story. But also, if she was gone, the child was gone, who's left to be taken out? Vernon. And maybe she thought Russell was the man to do that. Yeah, maybe so. That I find kill, it that would kill the line. Yeah, I find it curious. I've been wrestling with the fact that she goes to the hot springs at the end, where she had to know that Vernon would eventually find her there. Yeah. And we see the moment where it occurs to him that that's where she mm-hmm. is. Right? That's depicted. At the same time, she gives that away to Russell as well. She tells him the story of the hot springs. How could she As a hint. how could she yeah. make that mistake if she knew eventually if her grand scheme all along was to meet up with Vernon there? Why would she tell this interloper? I think her grand scheme well, the way I see it is her grand scheme was where they to were have going. Vernon and Russell meet each other. I don't know that she I meant agree for it that. to be there. Okay. With her. See, I felt like she, she was sent orchestrating him out that all along. to kill the wolf. She did. That was what she tells him. I know. So if Vernon is the wolf, that may have been her motivation in calling him Mm. and hoping they would meet at the village and knowing Vernon as a violent man who would see what has happened and start killing as he does indiscriminately. I mean, Russell very easily could have been one of those victims or she's putting hope in the fact that he would 
win out and I mean, take out Vernon. You're arguing very literally on the wolf. You think that I do. Yeah. You think that even at the beginning, when we know that he's still fighting, yeah, we don't know exactly where she thinks he is and that he could be out there. No, 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 no. I think he's in Iraq. Okay. I think he is. Okay. Yes. I think so. They, how was he going to meet him? When was Jeffrey Wright's character going to meet him? Because he got him? called back. She knew when the son went missing and word got to him, he would get called back. Hmm. Okay. I think. I don't know. We're kind of going down rabbit holes we are. now, but we are. I, think one, that's a, I think that's a compliment to the film. One little touch that I did latch onto, so I'll throw it out, even though I don't know what the significance is. The mask that comes into play, that wolf yeah. mask that he puts on when he's embracing Very cool when design. he's embracing that dark side of himself and her as well. I think that one character they meet that night, the one that he meets up with, says to him something like, have you ever worn a mask before? And of course, he has worn a mask before. Do you remember how long Sonia lingers the first on the time first we see shot him, of yeah. him when he's in the Combat desert gear. and he's just lit up a bunch of people without really hesitating at all, just annihilated a bunch of people. Yeah. And he sits there with that mask on what is and his... then he slowly yep. removes it. And what does his fellow soldier say after he that says, You're annihilation? A You're a meat eater. You're a meat eater. So great point. Kind of, kind of right on the nose there. <laughs> on that note. We will end this spoiler discussion of Hold the Dark. Hold the Dark is currently streaming on Netflix. If you have seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Some speed round reviews are coming up next, along with Massacre Theater. Then we consider another Netflix auteur. I think Tamara Jenkins qualifies as an auteur with our review of Private Life. Stay with us. Visions I vandalize, cold in my kingdom size. You should see me in a crowd I'm gonna run this nothing town Watch me make them bow One by, one by, one One by, one by You should see me in a crowd Your silence is my favorite sound A lot of the time, we feel like our lives are the worst. But think if you looked at anybody else's closet, you wouldn't trade your shit for their shit. So let's go. A bit of the trailer there for the latest from 824, mid-90s, the writing-directing debut from actor Jonah Hill. It's set in 90s Los Angeles, and it's a pretty gritty-looking drama about a young teen with a troubled home life who finds friends among a community of skateboarders. Skateboarding is back after yeah, the no wonderful kidding. film Minding the Gap, a documentary, and now mid-90s. And how about Skate Kitchen? Not one that either of us have no. seen, but a fiction feature about a bunch of girl skaters. That's from Crystal Mazel, director of The Wolfpack. Skate Kitchen, not on tap for next week, but we do plan to talk about mid-90s, and the top five is to be determined. This is where listeners may factor in. We have thrown around 90s scenes, so if you were trying to pick from all of the films of the 1990s, the moments that define the 90s? Well, yeah, or... you could go either way. You could go the best scenes from the 1990s, which sounds really hard. Really But hard. maybe you could narrow it down by selecting the ones that represent the 1990s? Yeah, maybe they don't have to be from films of the 90s. They could be like mid-90s, just set in the 90s. That's true. That's an option. 
How right? about how about 1990s movie cliches? Okay. So the the things that uh, just scream 90s movie to you. I don't know what that is. I'd have to like sit down and think about it. So reality bites, basically, our top five favorite scenes from reality <laughs> we bites. We could do that. That would be appropriate. <laughs> now, I do like this one, at least in terms of the creativity of the name. I don't know about how fruitful it is as a topic, but Sam threw out top five Lord of the Flies movies. These are movies that are about what happens when there aren't enough grownups around. Oh, man. That sounds scary. <laughs> It absolutely does. If you don't like any of those ideas and you have a better one, please do email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 file or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Now, surely there are some Film Spotting listeners out there. They're doing the math. They're looking at the calendar while they're listening to this show right now. And they're thinking, wait, this next episode is going to come out on November 2nd, that weekend. Suspiria opens. Bohemian Rhapsody opens, and they're going to be talking about mid-90s. Well, we would love to talk about Suspiria and probably Bohemian Rhapsody as well, but it turns out scheduling conflicts. We are just not going to be able to see either film the weekend they're released. We're going to have to talk about them the week after. At least gives all of our listeners out there a chance to see it as well. That's right. And listeners have been spoiled. I mean, there was a time on this show where we hardly ever this is true. had a review the day of opening. We've just been able to pull that off, done a lot of late night reviews after screenings to make that happen. In this case, yeah, juggling the screening options and our schedules, it just doesn't work. But we'll definitely, I think we're going to get to Suspiria absolutely yeah, at for sure. some point. Yeah, so November 9th, we plan to review Suspiria on the show. Now, am I holding this whole thing up? Are you going to get to an earlier screening of Suspiria? I'm just curious, are you going to hold off until it hits theaters as well? No, there is one this week that I'm 50-50 shot on being able to make. So yeah, couldn't commit to it for a show, but I do hope to get there. Okay. If you hope to get to an advanced screening of a movie opening up here in the Chicago area, we encourage you to visit filmspotting.net slash events. Right now we have passes to a Monday, November 5th screening of A Private War. It stars Rosamund Pike as real-life war correspondent Marie Colvin. It's the feature debut of documentary filmmaker Matthew Heineman, who made the War Zone docs Cartel Land and City of Ghosts. That movie opens in limited release on October 9th. Again, you can see it for free in advance on Monday Monday, November 5th, if you go to filmspotting.net slash events and enter there. We are almost weekly adding a couple new movie options there, either an advanced screening or one of engagement passes. While you're on the website looking for those passes, why don't you also go to the episodes page because that's where you can sign up for our newsletter. We've got issue number four went out this week. That includes a Q&A with you, Adam. Is, is that the reason that the newsletter is Ask longer? than yes. our average episode. Yeah, it's growing. Just like this Holy show, cow. it started out very modestly and it's gotten very long-winded. What did you cover in that Q&A? I covered a question about how we record the show because it's obviously not live. So how do we kind of put the segments together and what order do we go in? And also a question that was on a lot of listeners' minds, has been on a lot of listeners' minds over the past decade plus, why have you still not gotten to the John Cassavetes marathon? And I went back through the mailbag and I shared some of the correspondence you between myself, research. you and Sam for this question. And it turns out I'm happy to report. And I didn't know this before I dug into the email bag. I'm happy to report that we can pretty much put all the blame on you and Sam. That's fine. Because I, there's multiple I, times where I say, it's the next one, right? And then you guys are like, what about this? I stand by every other option that we did. Not 
any slight on Cassavetes at all, but I'm really happy with the directions we went. Hey, I'm going to guarantee when my time for the Q&A goes around, it is not going to be this deeply reported. Okay. Okay. That's don't, good. Don't expect that, listeners. Though, when Sam makes you answer his quick three that includes oh what you're listening to and watching – besides film spotting stuff, and reading right now, I'm sure you'll have a treatise about all the books you're reading, unlike me, who gets to about one a year, if I'm lucky. No, no treatise for me. This is another example of Sam speaking of the Cassavetes Marathon, just ignoring suggestions. I thought it was fairly clear in saying, sure, I'll answer one question when it comes to my turn. (laughs) Now it's like four or five. Yep. Oh my gosh. That's what makes him a good producer. He Uh knows what to ignore. And the problem is he thinks we can answer all those questions about listening, watching, and reading to because all of his kids are in school now. That's true. What does he have to do except think about film spotting? To be fair, Sam is holding up his end. He also shared – he went at length about his new dog in this newsletter. He did. So, so if you want the details about the dog's name, yes, the history of the, the dog. cinephile-inspired name. It's a great name. Yeah, you really do have to and check it out. And a photo. You can see the dog. Yeah. You can see the dog who does seem very cute. I'm sure the Van Hallgrens are very happy. Wanted to spend a moment just briefly on the Pantheon because this has come up quite frequently recently as we did a Sacred Cow review of both Halloween 78. We did a Sacred Cow review of Lost in Translation. And listeners are very invested, it seems, on whether or not these films will get in. I dropped a bombshell last week when I said that maybe if I was choosing, I'd actually put the Sofia Coppola film in ahead of the John Carpenter classic. And then we just kind of left it there and listeners were wondering, well, what did you decide? What happened? And we haven't decided anything. Listeners are assuming that we have a very set array of rules for the Pantheon, that it isn't just this nebulous thing that's developed over time. (laughs) That's true. But, but I know the, I know the Pantheon page on the website has a definition. It has some criteria laid out, but, you know, we got a voicemail from a listener, Ethan, in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, and it did help a little bit because this Pantheon is something that has been evolving over the years, and we've added these sacred cows and these blind spotting reviews that were never part of, obviously, the original vision of the show when the Pantheon was created in 2005, and it's easy to kind of lose sight of what the Pantheon was, and it was that place to put movies that you knew at the very beginning of the show before you'd ever even done it top five that left to your own devices, they were going to come up again and again and again, and that was going to get boring. Or over the course of doing the show, they did come up again and again and again, and they needed to be put away in that very special vault. And you can't really say, though, references to it have gone up quite a bit since you joined the show six years ago. You can't really say that Halloween or Lost in Translation are films that we repeatedly reference. Or have put on Top Lots five list repeatedly to your right. point. So, yeah, it's for now they're going to stay out both of them. It's well, so it it does have me rethinking our idea of having each sacred cow review end with a decision related to the pantheon. Sam tried to push that, and it's I liked it a though. I thought I like ending those reviews with a conclusion of some sort. Yeah. So may, maybe we just have to determine sacred or not. I mean, it could be as simple as that. Well, that was always kind of what it was. It was meant to be, is the movie a sacred cow or is it a false False idol? idol. Maybe we should return to that. And I think we both agree that Halloween is a sacred cow. And we both agree that Lost in Translation is too, in so much as you definitely think it's a sacred cow. And I think it's way closer to a sacred cow than a false idol. It's that area in between that makes it tough because there are always going to be those movies that one of us may feel just a little bit less enthusiastic and passionate about, even though we ultimately are pro 
the film, and the other person thinks it's one of their 50 or 100 greatest movies of all time. But this way allows for a split as well, you know, where we, one of us could declare it a sacred cow and the other could declare it a false idol. That's true. If we return to the idea of the pantheon and reserve that for the films that do repeatedly come up Mm -hmm. on our top five list. Now, the challenge there is going to be, what if there's one that comes up on my top five list a lot because I love it? And That's you what don't the penalty like box is for. At all. That's so the what pantheon, your penalty box is for. So the is pantheon for. is only those. But, you, but you're going to yeah. have to follow that rule, too. So I if know. there's one like the right stuff I know. or something. I can't like, put it in. You, but, but it goes in your penalty box. You are box. blocking the right stuff's path. Well, to its proper enshrinement. Yeah, that's right. I'm okay with that. So, have we settled this? We got to get now. We got to get Sam's opinion on all this nonsense we just threw out there. But well, I know he would love it if we decided that at the end of every Sacred Cow review, whether or not it went in to the Pantheon, and I just don't think that's realistic. So, it I sounds think like that's are, gotten messy. Yeah, I think we are still deciding whether or not it's a false idol or a sacred cow, and the Pantheon is going to have to be its own beast that we tackle when it seems appropriate. Sounds good. Okay, one more quick note before we get to poll talk. The Austin meetup is on. We've got a date, Saturday, November 3. I'll be down there. I'm not sure of the exact time or the place yet. So as always, those of you who live in Austin or nearby, if you have any suggestions. Just walk around downtown, yell out for Josh. (laughs) We could try that. I'd rather have a meeting place. I don't know if that's how you do your meetups, Adam. Email the show, feedback at filmspotting.net, or find me on social media. I'm Larson on film. And yeah, I'll put out there the location. Let me know some suggestions where to get together, and we'll do that. Saturday, November 3. It's coming up. I'm so jealous that you get to meet up with our Austin listeners. What can I say? I'm going to get there someday. Last week, along with our reviews of Halloween 78 and 18, we offered up this poll question. What is the best music biopic performance of the past 20 years? There was a vocal minority who were very upset that we included John Cusack's Brian Wilson, but not Paul Dano's from Love and Mercy. I think we relegated him to another option. But would it have been an even more vocal minority if we had included Dano and not Cusack? People would have still been unhappy. I'm pretty sure of that. That seems to happen with our poll questions. Four of the seven options we gave you were Oscar-nominated, including two winners. We want to know which one is your favorite. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We will have the results on next week's show. All right. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. You see, my dear Bond, we're well able to protect ourselves against all enemies. Allow me to introduce you to the airlock chamber. Observe, Mr. Bond, your route from this world to the next. And you, Dr. Goodhead, your desire to be America's first woman in space will shortly be fulfilled. Leaving you on your flying stud farm, conceiving your new master race. If you like, yes. And of course, anyone not measuring up to your standards of physical perfection will be exterminated. Certainly. That is Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax alongside Roger Moore's James Bond in 1979's Moonraker. It was written by Christopher Wood, directed by Lewis Gilbert. And that massacre was inspired by a review a couple of weeks back of Damien Chazelle's First Man. The tie-in, Adam? Any guesses? How about the moon? Nice. (laughs) 
listeners added a little bit more to the mix, including Lee Radosh from Sinking Spring, Pennsylvania. I knew right away it was Moonraker. I was about eight when it came out. Though I didn't get the innuendos, I watched it a hundred times and loved it. It was on cable recently. I tuned in and realized how cheesy it was. There needs to be a suspension of disbelief for all Bond films, but this one takes the cake. I could only stomach 10 minutes this time around. But what little boy didn't want to be James Bond? Given the review of First Man, the tie-in was obvious. Tom Schutzer in Westfield, New Jersey, wrote in, Your very woke update to the character name of Holly Goodhead wasn't quite clever enough to throw me off the scent of this week's massacre theater scene from my favorite bad James Bond film, Moonraker. What? Did our producer Sam put in I'm instead of that up right Dr. Now. Goodhead? It was Dr. Clevermind, I think. <laughs> Dr. Sounds, Clevermind. That sounds right. Very woke. The connections between Moonraker and the Neil Armstrong biopic First Man are clearly lunar in nature, but an interesting tidbit about the Bond film involves its copying of the NASA space shuttle design as the basis for its own space vehicles. The release of the film was originally timed to coincide with the first planned space shuttle launch, but because of NASA delays, director Lewis Gilbert ended up showing the world its very first look at an entire entirely faked shuttle launch two years before the real version would make its debut. In precisely the same way, Stanley Kubrick showed the world its first look at the entirely faked Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. Just kidding. Or am I? Tom. We also heard from Stuart Feldstein in Bondurant. Bondurant, right? Bondurant. Bondurant. How dare you? Iowa, of course. That's why Adam is correcting me. It was so obvious to spot the connection. Ryan Gosling starred with Russell Crowe in The Nice Guys, and Crowe starred with Kim Basinger in L.A. Confidential, and Basinger was married to Alec Baldwin and also co-starred with him in the remake of The Getaway, and Baldwin co-starred with Sean Connery in The Hunt for Red October, and Connery was succeeded by Roger Moore as James Bond, and Moore delivered the immortal space stud farm line in Moonraker. (laughs) Bondurant, Bondurant, Basinger, Basinger, Josh. I was thinking about that as I said it. (laughs) Laura Ellis in Dade City, Florida says perhaps a more obscure tie-in was that Moonraker was the 11th film in the Bond franchise and the Apollo moon mission was Apollo 11. Pretty sure that's that's what we were going for. Exactly what we were thinking. (laughs) Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Josh's Hugo Drax had the appropriate pompousness and Adam acted too. I love that. (laughs) And Adam acted too. That pretty much nails it. You did. I can only assume the tie-in has to do with space, but I also assume that Drax and Gosling Sebastian from La La Land probably have a lot of jazz albums on vinyl. (laughs) Surely. (laughs) Eric Winter in Falcon Heights, Minnesota says the tie-in is that both Moonraker and First Man fail to feature the American flag prominent. Please, Eric. Jared in Springfield, Missouri, says, I was thrown for a loop when James Bond, the ultimate womanizer, came into the scene with a woman's voice. Yeah, Kevin Oakes in Princeton, New Jersey, I think, said it best, although Adam's interpretation was closer to Demi Moore than Roger Moore. (laughs) What can I say? I just have a mental block when it comes to performing as British men. Yeah. My my voice just goes up like 12 registers. Into vaguely Austrian women. That's exactly right. And Kevin added, Josh's performance left me shaken and stirred. Thank you, Kevin. I think. <laughs> Reach into the film spotting hat. It's not too brimming. What? A lot of people must have missed this movie when they were kids or they did not recognize that James Bond impression. I can't believe they missed it. I, I was like Lee. I think I saw this a hundred times when I was about eight or so as well. I loved- I've still never seen it. Oh, I don't want to see it again because I don't want to have Lee's experience. (laughs) All right. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Miles Sibley from Minneapolis. Congratulations, Miles. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. 
We move on now to this decidedly not funny voices edition of Massacre Theater. Is distinct, that fair to say? Distinct voices. They are distinct. I think I can do this, guy. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel like I normally do. <laughs> I'm going to try my you're best. Go- you're going to act. I'm going to act. Okay, let's hear it. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Give me one second. Okay. And action. What about your agent? You hear anything yet? Nope. What do you think is going on? Could be anything. You've been checking your messages? Obsessively. Huh. Guess I'll just have to learn to kiss off another three years of my life. But you haven't heard anything yet, so you don't think your negativity... Sorry. (laughs) You just said sorry like him. I don't break character, Adam. (laughs) But you haven't heard anything yet, so don't you think your negativity is a little premature? Hmm? All right, you know, F the New York publishers. Publish it yourself. I'll chip in. Just get it out there. Get it reviewed. Get it in libraries. Let the public decide. And scene. Get it what? Uh, Reviewed? Yeah. Get it reviewed. (laughs) Oh, man. Did I get it? Well, you did your best impression of Saturday Night Live's The Californians. And by way of a hint, (laughs) that is actually appropriate. Nice. Okay. I think you nailed it. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, November 5th. And yes, that does tie in with one of the films being discussed on this week's show. One of the 20. One of the 20. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. If we're going to spend any time at all on the latest from Marielle Heller, who gave us the wonderful Diary of a Teenage Girl a few years ago, it was a Film Spotting Golden Brick nominee, I'm really glad that we are transitioning with that Larson Recommends theme music. You are recommending Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy. Definitely, yeah. And, of course, I'm on the Melissa McCarthy watch. If there's a new film from her, I've got to... I kept you abreast of the Happy Time murder, so I've got to do Can You Ever Forgive Me. Wow, this is something really different. I mean, even Happy Time Murders had her going in full comic anger mode, which I usually enjoy, but I was unprepared for just the caustic misanthrope that she plays here. It is based on the real-life biographer Lee Israel, who she forged personal letters from celebrities and then sold them to collectors. And not a spoiler, um, it's in the trailer, but the law starts sniffing around and things get intense. And McCarthy's performance has that anger in it. Um, Lee Israel is someone, as she plays her, who just barks at people as a matter of instinct. So we get those snarling comic insults. But man, she also, she buries herself under these ugly, unclean sweaters and she glares at everyone. And it's it's almost, the physicality here is interesting. It's almost whenever someone comes near her, she just withdraws and, and, and doesn't even want to be approached. But it's a really heartbreaking performance because at the same time, she's giving you a portrait of a woman who deep down does desire companionship. She just has she isn't wired to accept it. You know, there, there's another moving scene where she's on a date with another woman who's reaching out, just trying to connect with her. And it would be such a good thing. And she just can't do it. 
It's also funny, though, in many moments, a lot of them are due to Richard E. Grant, who plays a fellow alcoholic she runs into. He gets drawn into her scheme, and they have this love-hate relationship that has some very sad moments, some very comic moments, and also a really touching one where he offers to help her clean up her apartment, even though he's got to stick these cotton balls in his nose just to be able to stand the smell. So this... As we teased last week, is not a happy-go-lucky film necessarily. It fits in with many of the other movies we're talking about on this show, but it's a really interesting one. I wish it didn't aim for uplift as much as it does in the end. Not that it's a traditionally happy ending, but it does take a little bit turn away from what otherwise is a really rich sense of moroseness. I'd even point out, you know, the cinematography by Brandon Trost, a lot of this takes place over a New York City winter and is in these really dusty bookstores. And uh, the dim cinematography that that is employed really captures uh, the sense of the sense of mood in this film. So I definitely would recommend it for Heller fans, for McCarthy fans. Um, I hope people Go out to see it. And because of both Heller and McCarthy, you had reasonably high expectations for this film. Sounds like they were mostly met. You probably had even higher expectations for another film that is currently playing on Netflix, The Land of Steady Habits. The director there is Nicole Holofcener, who gave us not only a film we both love, Enough Said, starring James Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but also Please Give and Lovely and Amazing. I know you are a fan of both of those films, so where does this one fit into your Holofcener ranking? Yeah, it doesn't quite meet those standards. There are some interesting things going on here. Maybe not enough of those gems that I go to her movies for where they're just acutely observed, vulnerably authentic moments. You get a few here, but I'm used to a Hall of Center movie that's just chock full of them. Um, And maybe it's because this is the first time that she's adapting someone else's work. It's based on a novel actually by Ted Thompson. That's one curiosity. The other curiosity is the main performance here. The lead is Ben Mendelsohn giving a regular guy mildly comic turn. And I know I've already heard from people on Twitter who say, hey, the guy's done lots of early Mm -hmm. stuff that is different than what he's come to be known for, sort of intimidating, yeah. often violent characters. Even the place beyond the pines, he's not very sinister. But I'm, He's a criminal, you know, I but think, he's a good dude. Yeah, and I, I think, but he's been known for more, re, more recently, I'd say he's been known for skeevy characters. Yes. Let's say that. This is just a regular guy. He's a, uh, a recently divorced, uh, early retired finance guy who's just basically trying to find his bearings in this unmoored life. That's interesting but it doesn't go much more beyond that. I wouldn't say that Mendelssohn does anything wrong. He's he's very watchable here. Uh, it just doesn't have that gripping authenticity that her movies usually do. As a matter of fact, there are two supporting performances that hint at um, what – maybe I normally expect from a Hall of Center movie. One is by Connie Britton, who plays a woman that uh, Mendelssohn's character ends up going on a few dates with. And the other is Edie Falco as his ex-wife. And separately, they inject little, just lines here or there or observations that kind of ring that bell where I'm like, oh, now I'm in a Hall of Center movie. The other stuff is still interesting. Uh, I would definitely say, especially because you can catch it on Netflix right now, if you're a fan of hers at all, to, to give it a try and see what you think. I would like to catch up with both of those films. The one movie that I've had a chance to see recently, Josh, that you have not seen yet is the latest documentary from the venerable documentarian Frederick Weissman, who has now made 
with Monrovia, Indiana, his 42nd doc. That's insane. Since 1967. And the film obviously chronicles life in that Indiana town, population 1,063. It's mainly a farming community. And this is, as you would expect, another exhaustive Wiseman institutional excavation. Here the institution is small-town America and everything that signifies – But within that larger framework, he burrows into the institutions that are the foundations of life in Monrovia. There are so many shots of streets and houses. We never go inside any of those houses. There aren't characters in Wiseman's films who are going to lead us to certain conclusions. We go to the places where people congregate, church and religious education groups, the Freemasons and a ceremony there, the barber shop. We get city planning meetings, and nobody loves a meeting more than Frederick Weissman. If you've seen some of his recent films like Ex Libris, the one that takes place at the New York Public Library or at Berkeley, he does spend a lot of time behind those closed doors with people going through policy and talking about processes that may not be sexy to a lot of people, but they certainly are to Weissman. This is how progress happens. And Wiseman, once again, I think, reveals his enduring inquisitiveness without being an inquisitor. There's no easily discernible or then dismissible agenda or narrative. There's just curiosity and observation and discovery for both the filmmaker and the audience. One of the hallmarks of his films are that there are no talking heads, right? If he's going to let the footage the words and the actions of Monrovians define who they are and what they stand for. He's not going to offer people a chance to create their own narratives either. He's just going to try to capture what he perceives as the truth of life in this town and for these people. If you look at the official synopsis, the description makes the case for the material's importance, if not argue for a certain side to choose. It says 46 million Americans live in rural, small-town America. These towns were once the backbone of American life. While their number and populations have shrunk, the importance of rural America as a formative center of American politics and values was demonstrated in the 2016 presidential election. So clearly, at least the people marketing this film, but I'm sure Wiseman as well, are trying to position this story within this larger political and cultural context that we find ourselves in some of the issues that we are confronting every day on a national and global scale do come up in very subtle ways in this film. I think it's in the first city planning meeting. There's discussion of what they call these homesteaders. And again, there's no real explanation of what that means. You just have to kind of put it together based on the way they're talking about it, that this is a new community. It's part of the town of Monrovia, but these new affordable houses have been set up. And some of the people on that planning committee talk about how there's lots of crime there and the police are going there all day long. And maybe this doesn't represent what Monrovia is really all about. All the euphemisms. All the euphemisms. It's never outright said, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly implied that maybe these people aren't white. Maybe they aren't traditionally who and what you think of as people from Monrovia, Indiana. And then you have other people on the committee who say, you know what, actually, lots of people who grew up here and who have always needed a place to live, they live there, too. And the problems you're talking about maybe aren't as widespread as your perception. And there is a little bit of pushback without it ever getting heated in the way we would expect most discussions of that type to get. And I think it's worth pointing out. Weissman and his eye and his attention to detail in a later scene where a citizen is complaining about a whole host of things. And one of the things he brings up is the people who live 
in the homestead territory and how that's probably going to grow. And he's sure that if you asked most people from around here, that wouldn't be seen as a good thing. The camera cuts to a close-up of the woman on the planning committee who was the most vocal Mm. along those same lines in that previous meeting we saw. And she gets a little smirk on her face during that moment. You actually do have to kind of read into it and wonder if it's a smirk because it's kind of her thinking, well, I told you so, right? This is a, this is a normal town resident, just like me. And look, he's agreeing with everything I said, you should listen to him and you should listen to me. What I do think really is so sublime ultimately about Wiseman's films, is that they are fundamentally about people and these internal and external forces that are pushing and pulling against them. And I just think about the films themselves as documenting a place and an activity in real time in the present day. But by the time the movies actually come out, these institutions have already started to undergo another evolution. Right. Monrovia, he shot this film probably a couple of years ago, and then he has to go through the post-production process. And now we see it and we reckon with it right now. But Monrovia has already moved on. All these institutions have already moved on. And it's part of his project as a filmmaker to capture these moments in time, but not to see them necessarily as rigid, as stuck in time. They're meant to be then consumed by us in the future, even if it's in the very near future, a year or two later, or 20 years from now, it's always going to be this dialogue. And he's a singular filmmaker bringing these projects to us. Well, they're institutions. I mean, in Jackson Heights is the one I'm most familiar with, but they're institutions as organisms, right? That's right. that's what he's he's recognizing and documenting. So, so let me ask you uh, the same question you asked me, because you are much more familiar with Wiseman. Where would you rank this? Is is this one of the better ones you've seen? Kind of a you know what you come to expect from him, or or below average? No, I would put it up there with my favorite of the ones nice. of his films that I've seen. Now there are a lot of his 42 films yes, that I, I do still I need to see, but it's certainly up there with some of my favorite. And just one last thought about the movie, Josh, as I talk about how it doesn't give us any characters, it doesn't take us inside any of these homes, but it shows us all of these different town institutions and some of these ceremonies and rituals that play out every day. It is interesting to watch. If you think about the movie's perspective and whether or not Wiseman is ultimately commenting at all on life in this town and the residents and their political persuasion. If he is trying to make any kind of point, the one thing that I was keenly aware of in every scene was how disengaged everybody there seemed to be, whether they're being talked to by a pastor at church or they're at a wedding or they're at a bridal shower where A woman is opening up gifts and she's saying, oh, look at that. And it's this happy moment. Everyone around her always seems to have a dispassionate look on their face. It's Hmm. almost as if they're all going through the motions of what they think daily life in a small town is supposed to be. There's that kind of disconnection from reality, even as that's all the movie is. There's scarcely a moment in this film where you see anybody, even when it's someone who's being recognized for 50 years of service for something where you see them get emotional, where you see the other people around them do anything but sort of look on and just take in the moment. It's a really curious thing, the way Wiseman captures all of those faces, and he captures a lot of them because as these moments are going on, that's who we're seeing. We're observing all the other people observing, and they're not actually 
active participants in anything. And the only time that we get an exception to that is the people who are talking in these planning meetings. Interesting. It, I'm, I'm picturing some of the scenes in Nebraska for some reason, uh, you know, especially with the family, the unemotive family mm-hmm. at the Alexander Payne film and wondering if it is an accurate portrait of a subculture to a Maybe. degree. Monrovia, Indiana opens theatrically this weekend at New York's Film Forum, and then it begins a national rollout. It hits L.A. on November 2nd, and there are additional markets to follow in November and December. Chicago is one of those. Austin is one of those. Cleveland, Denver, Detroit, Houston, and more. If you see that film or Either of the two films Josh mentioned, Can You Ever Forgive Me and The Land of Steady Habits, you can email us your thoughts, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. We hope you have room for one more movie. This time, it's one Adam and I have both seen. Our review of Tamara Jenkins' Private Life is next. Stay with us. Don't be cautious. Don't be kind. You committed. I'm your crime. Push my button. Anytime you've got your finger on the trigger, but your trigger finger's mine. Silver dollar, golden flame, dirty water, poison rain, perfect murder, take your aim. I don't belong to anyone, but everybody knows my name. Is an immoral act. Overpopulation, climate change, rise of neo-fascism. Did you take your Valium? Yes. Why? They're trying a by any means necessary approach. I thought they were done with all that and they were trying to adopt. They're still doing that. They're like fertility junkies. You're listening to Film Spotting. That's the trailer for writer-director Tamara Jenkins' Private Life. You heard a good chunk of the movie's ensemble there. That was Molly Shannon with John Carroll Lynch. Before that, Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti. Hahn and Giamatti are the stars of Jenkins' film. They play a couple in their 40s, both working artists, or at least one, I think, is a working artist, one's formerly an artist who have put off having children and now have to seek medical intervention to make it happen. Things get complicated when Giamatti's college-age step-niece offers to be an egg donor for the couple. She's played by newcomer Kaylee Carter. Now, Jenkins also directed 2007's The Savages that starred Laura Linney and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like The Savages, which was about a brother and sister caring for an aging father, Private Life takes a painful, complicated subject matter and considers it with an eye for the absurd. Adam, I'm working on my written review of this film as we speak, and the phrase that came to mind to me is, Jenkins in this film in particular, she looks at life's challenges with an unblinking eye that occasionally sneaks in a wink. And I think that's what I really appreciate about her films is they find that balance between holding on to the reality while also giving us a lot of cathartic releases of humor that's just as genuine. It feels just Mm. as genuine to me. I love this movie. Really? And you're you're slightly frowning. No, no. I didn't strongly dislike the movie. There is a lot to recommend here, but I think the humor was actually 
the biggest problem for me. So really? let's, let's talk about what works about the movie. It's a really smart movie. It's incredibly well acted. I think that it's very much about the struggle many endure, obviously, when trying to have a baby. And yet it's not really about having a baby at all. It's about succumbing to adulthood and the choices we make and the rationalizations and the regrets and issues that really any married couple faces. So whether or not you relate directly to what this couple is going through or not, I think there is a lot that you can connect with. I think it's really skillfully shot as well by mm-hmm. the cinematographer here, Christos Vidoris. He did Before Midnight. He did Alps, the Yorgos Lanthimos film. He also did Ira Sachs' really good movie, Love is Strange, from a few years ago. You don't see many films that play with focus as much as Private Life does and blurred mm-hmm. images then ultimately coming into focus. And I think that does all serve to heighten this couple's anxiety and ours as viewers. And Maybe that word, anxiety, is the key to my reaction to this movie. It made me so anxious. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it's supposed to. Yeah, of course. And credit to Jenkins as a director and a writer and to Han and Giamatti that all of those frustrating, painful, vulnerable, raw kind of conversations and scenarios made me that anxious and uncomfortable because I think they are ultimately so real. Han's character, Rachel, is one who never holds back Mm -hmm. anything. She shares her feelings whenever she is compelled to, which is often. And Josh, you know me, I'm more of a repress and deny kind of guy. So, yeah, I can relate. Yeah, this type of dysfunction and the confrontation we get in many scenes in this film is tough for me to watch, as it was in Jenkins' last film, The Savages, which I wasn't a fan of. Now, I said the humor here is what ultimately didn't work for me, and I don't want to suggest that there aren't lines or beats or gags that don't work. There absolutely are some. I think if you get on its wavelength, that absurdity, the heightened nature of it, the theatricality of it— could be very satisfying and kind of profound in the way it winks at us to use your word and how it surrounds such really serious subject matter. If you don't quite get on the wavelength, and I never did, it feels a little bit contrived and artificial, too much at odds with the underlying reality. And actually, it grinds what is otherwise a pretty swift movie to a halt. I'll give you one example. There's a revelation I won't spoil that happens during Thanksgiving. After Molly Shannon has stood up and said, we're all going to go around the room and say what we're grateful (laughs) for. And another relative, after this big moment where this this confession happens. This didn't work for you? This confession happens, and then a few of the people splinter off to the kitchen to argue, and another relative gets up and decides he's going to take his turn anyway, and it's a weighty admission by him. And I thought that was actually really funny. Okay, I good. loved that moment. But then what I didn't love is when the sequence goes back to the poor guy to tag the scene where only like three people are still sitting there and he's obviously yammering it on. That's when it then pushed that joke just a little bit too far for me. No, yeah. th- that was the exclamation point it no. needed because that's taking it to a really dark place. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because it's making you feel bad about laughing earlier. If it had just <laughs> I don't want to go there. If it had just done it once. You could laugh and feel okay. Then we return to it, and you're right. The guy is making a really heartfelt confession slash admission expression of gratitude, and right. no one cares. No, we're no just going to mock him. No one cares. <laughs> but that's not the spirit. That's not representative of the spirit of the movie overall. It's it's a, it's one tiny little um, um, jet over to dark humor, uh, to really black comedy that I appreciated. Um, I laughed so much in this movie. I'm really surprised you used the word theatrical because it did not – strike me that way at all. Everything I well, laughed at heightened. was, well, it gets loud. It, it gets loud and big. And Han's performance in particular, 
But every time it was so rooted in a real situation. And I want to get back to Han because right now she's on my list among the best female performances of the year. I just loved this so much, Hmm. her character. She's uh, incredibly talented. We're going to get back to her. Uh, But let me talk about the visual wit a little bit more. The very first shot where we see her, it's really just her midsection, reclined on a bed on her side. And uh, her torso is exposed. Mm -hmm. And immediately... the anti-Lost in we, Translation. We, yes, I thought of Lost in Translation. And that and, and decades of other films were conditioned to think something sexual is at play, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a man, Giamatti, comes into the frame, pause, and then he just jabs her with a needle of fertility drugs. Yeah. And, and it, it's funny. It's disorienting. It also gets at the, the notion that um, the mood – it's not just that the mood has been killed for them. It's that what they're facing, what they're struggling with, th- there's realism under the joke. They, there's no possibility of even having a mood, right? This no. has overtaken their life, their sex life, everything. They've become, as that clip we played suggested, they've become obsessed. So let me get to Han because what I think is also the realism rooted in her big performance where she flies off the handle frequently, she's reacting to what her life has become, the complete loss of dignity by having to undergo continuous medical procedures, investigations. I mean, she she's just lost control in many ways of her own body. Um, she's She's done this willingly, but it has made her really mad. And maybe my favorite scene is when she loses it. They're discussing. They have a painting in their apartment mm-hmm. of full frontal female nudity. It, yes. it's, it's really graphic. And they're discussing. They're also – adoption is at play here. They're playing all the angles. So mm-hmm. there's going to be an adoption counselor coming to interview them. And Giamatti says something about, do you think we should take this down? I don't know what kind of impression it makes. She just goes nuts because – It's not logical, but she's drawing a line in the sand. Like that's one thing she's not going to give up. She may have to have given up control of her body and all these procedures, but she's not taking that painting down. After their argument, which I think I think she's like not wearing any pants, by no. the way, during which this whole scene. is another really forced gag that's no, not funny. No, that's completely no. natural. This, this is how couples argue. <laughs> You've never argued in a state of ridiculous undress. This is when it happens. And then she immediately goes into the bathroom and starts frantically <laughs> scrubbing the shower. Yeah. I, I, it's funny hearing okay. you retell it. I thought it was great. It but wasn't in the, the moment. Here's the visual wit. The cut immediately to the two of them sitting on the couch yes. with their dogs perfectly positioned the couch counselor has now arrived, the adoption counselor, perfectly positioned in this image of domesticity, yet right above their heads is, is the, painting. Ex- the painting, the yeah. graphic painting. I, I, but also for me, you say me for me, it, it it wasn't any kind of surprise at all. Like you knew that cut was coming. I to felt the, like to that shot? Line. Yeah, where they're now going to put themselves completely at the mercy of that woman and try to placate her. I don't know. It got me and, and the creativity of just the composition of it got me. Okay, this isn't just Han, though, hitting two things. It's not just her surprising me because I've known her mainly from comic performances. Parks and Recreation, I think of the supporting run she had there. Step Brothers. Um, Sure, yeah. So that's what I I thought of her as. So, yes, I was surprised, but that's not just why I'm praising this performance. Um, I think there is subtlety and there are layers here. And another favorite moment of mine is when their niece – is reading an old review from the Village Voice mm-hmm. of one of Richard's early theater productions. And they're kind of like enjoying it. Richard is enjoying it, but they're not being smug about it. No. She just gives him a little right. affectionate kick with her leg. And all of a sudden you get their whole past 
in that gesture. And I think the two of them together, Giamatti and Han, they create – you instantly know this is a couple who has been through better – and worse, um, without having to tell you much. And it's in, it's in little gestures like that. So I do think the movie is chock full of that stuff. Um, and, and speaking of Han being someone I know mostly as a comic actress, Molly Shannon in this. She's really good. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. As the sister-in-law and the mother of the niece. Yep. She has some moments mm-hmm. that are um, really powerful. And she doesn't have a ton of scenes. She makes the most of them. They're well-written. And... I haven't seen her get a lot of chance to show this side. Did you ever see Year of the Dog? The um, oh no, you didn't like Year of the Dog. Oh, <laughs> Sam. See, this also, is just, Sam. Also, it's a humor thing. It's it a humor really thing, is. and it's a subjective thing, like all of this is anyway. But what makes you laugh is something that's really hard to pin down. And Sam and I saw Year of the Dog with Molly Shannon at Sundance. He loved it. Good. I thought it was the worst film oh. I saw there. And guess what? Sam also thought this movie was funny and thought it was great. That's what and it loved is. Loved as then. much as you, and I didn't. So I have a different sense of humor. Yeah, very clearly. I think that's it. Then. The two of you, even though we seem to get along whenever we hang out together. Now, it's moments like that one, that little moment, that physical moment between Han and Giamatti and that relationship, how you can fill in all the blanks because Jenkins and those performers have done all that work that make this movie one I ultimately do recommend. But you haven't even mentioned what for me is by far the best performance in this film. And that's Kaylee Carter. Yeah, she's really good. Kaylee Carter as the niece. She bridges the ache and absurdity and I think becomes the movie's salvation just as her character Sadie tries to be the salvation for the desperate central couple. I am not familiar with her work at all. She is apparently on a Netflix series, a Western called Godless. She also plays a character named Sadie in that. If you look at her IMDb, she's got a movie coming out in 2019, Mary Herons making a Charles Manson movie about I'm sure the women of Charlie Manson is called Charlie Says. She plays Squeaky Fromm. Oh, my goodness. What an inspired casting choice. She's going to be a perfect Squeaky Fromm. Maybe I love the performance and I love the character so much, Josh, because I can't resist a 20-something who can drop in a drugstore cowboy reference as naturally (laughs) as she does. But I just really think it's a brilliant performance. Sam, in the Film Spotting newsletter this week, called it tricky, a tricky part. That's the right word for it. But that also doesn't feel sufficient. It doesn't feel potent enough for what I think Carter is doing here. Sadie's, she's selfish and she's also giving and she's precocious, Mm -hmm. but she's also world weary and she's reasonably thoughtful and sweet, but she's got absolutely no filter either and no fear. And I think the best moments in the film, the funniest moments in the film for me are when she completely innocently spits out some biting critique of Richard and Rachel of adulthood, actually, really. And she's doing it right to their faces. And she has no sense of kind of the daggers that right. she is stabbing through them. And they can't do anything but just look on stunned at how brazen she is. Those moments are wonderful. And she's someone that I think in different hands, you could easily hate her, even as you recognize she's making a sacrifice for two people she loves. But I wanted to be her best friend, even as she annoyed the crap out of me sometimes. And yes, that is the writing and directing, but I think it's mostly the casting in this case. It's the performance. It's the wit and the energy that Kaylee brings to Sadie. And also notice that moment that we touched on, the moment that you brought up that I like so much as well. That's a Sadie-driven moment. It's Sadie reading that article, and it causes them to have this really nice yeah, touching moment together. and that's genuine together. from her, too. She brings stability 
to Rachel and Richard's relationship. She brings stability, I think, in a way to Han's performance, too, in terms of bringing her down a little bit. And everything, once Sadie becomes part of this film, is where I really got a lot more engaged. So everybody at your school is getting published in Tin House? Not everybody. I just mean in general, like, everyone is so self-promoting and convinced of their own artistic promise. And I'm like, hey, my uncle is an award-winning theater genius, and my aunt is a real-life playwright and author who gets invited to Yaddo and and gets her stories published in well-known periodicals that normal people have actually ever heard of, like The New Yorker, for instance. And they're over 40 and still have to live in a rent-stabilized apartment on Avenue A with, like, drunks and graffiti in the front. So don't talk to me about the sacrifices you're making to be an artist, okay? Yeah, Carter's wonderful. And I think what it is is that she's brave enough to really be that frustrating presence, um, to really make uh, Sadie be someone that we get mad at, right? We get disappointed Mm -hmm. at, and we understand their frustrations as well. So, yeah, to be, you know, a relative newcomer to such big roles, at least big screen roles, and being able to play that side of the character so well is, is also really impressive. Private Life is currently streaming on Netflix. Tell us whether or not you are truly Team Adam or Team Josh. Where does your sense of humor align? <laughs> it's, it's a good litmus test, it I is. guess. We want to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And Josh, that is our show. That's the show. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. We're also asking you the current film spotting poll question there. What is the best music biopic performance of the last 20 years? If you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to order some film spotting t-shirts or t-shirts, is that a thing? T-shirts, sure. Do we have t-shirts? Film Spotting t-shirts or any other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, Hunter Killer, an untested American submarine captain, teams with U.S. Navy SEALs to rescue the Russian president who has been kidnapped by a rogue general. It stars Gerard Butler and Gary Oldman. I actually spent about 2.5 seconds today trying to come up with some play on Air Force One, but in a submarine and... That, that wasn't is enough what time. This, this is that, isn't it? Because I came up with nothing. <laughs> I'm right. just not clever enough. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Indivisible. When war etches battle scars on their hearts, an army chaplain and his wife face one more battle, the fight to save their marriage. I bet one of them isn't wearing pants either. Out in limited release, opening here in Chicago. Can you ever forgive me with Melissa McCarthy, recommended by Josh and mid 90s, the new one from Jonah Hill, the actor making his debut as a writer and director next week on the show. Right now, it is our plan to talk about mid 90s and come up with yet another fun filled film spotting top five that ties into mid 90s. If you have any great ideas, we'd love for you to share them feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halkeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. If you enjoyed this show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach a couple of new listeners. Our music this week is from Billie Eilish. More information is at BillieEilish.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.